Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. Every single week we sit down with 25 masters of the design industry. Well, every week we sit down with one of them. For 25 weeks we're doing this straight. Now, if we haven't let you down, I don't think we're going to let you down today either. Because today's master is incredible. He built an app that we all loved using when it came out. Who is it? We're speaking with Gentry Underwood. He founded a company called Mailbox. He's going to tell us about design being a we versus an I. He's going to tell us how to be very productive when we're working. And he's going to talk about how he built Mailbox. Can't wait to get into this episode. By the way, before we cut away, if you haven't yet left a review for us on the App Store or on iTunes or in your favorite podcasting app, please do that. Reach out to us on Twitter, by the way, if you have any questions. We go through a lot of insights in this episode. So you guys are bound to have some follow-up questions. You can ask us. You can ask Gentry. Go onto YouTube. Leave us a comment. We're going to have a lot of fun in this episode. So stick around. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Gentry, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is so clear to other people? Um, I think one of the things that I struggle a lot with when talking about design is the scope of how that's discussed. Uh, it feels like for a lot of people, design is a, a way of making things pretty or a way of making things uh, easier to use, which can certainly be true. But um, for me, I think more than anything else, design is really a way of solving problems or bringing ideas into reality. And that's as broadly applicable as there are problems and needs in our own lives, which is pretty much everywhere. So I think of design as, as useful for improving an interface as for, say, um, getting the product market fit in the abstract or starting a startup in the effort to find a, a business model that hasn't existed before. Just uh, different challenges, different needs, and uh, it's really a it's really a way or a methodology of going about exploring the solution space in, in search of a particular fit. So, what I'm getting from that is it's a set of practices that get you from understanding and finding a problem to figuring out how to solve that problem. With that definition, anyone solving a problem in the world is a designer. Is that right? Anyone who's using a design methodology to solve a problem. There's lots of ways to solve problems, and some are better suited for certain kinds of problems than others. A problem with a very known solution, but maybe a hard to realize solution might use something like Six Sigma right. to really focus in right. on the best expression of it possible. I think design's really well suited when you have a, an understanding, be it clear or vague to begin with, of a problem and no idea mm. what the solution might look like. It's a, it's like a searching methodology. It's a way of going out and navigating a potentially infinite solution space to find the, the way of configuring reality that might um, bring a, an achievement to your goal or a solution to your problem. Gotcha. Could design be used to find problems too, or is it just used for once a problem is found, executing on a solution? Um, I think Certainly, we can say that part of the design methodology entails understanding problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably don't go looking in search of them in the abstract, but uh, you, it's like you have two sides of an equation. On the one is your understanding of the reality that you wish to change, and the other is the alteration of reality that you're going to realize in order to make that change. And uh, as you go, your understanding increases and your the fidelity of your realization increases in a back-and-forth kind of process. And so in that sense, you're certainly putting a lot more color and understanding on a problem that you might have started out only having a vague understanding for. Mm -hmm. When we talked to you on the phone and, and we were trying to figure out when to meet and how to meet, like we were just talking about design, yeah. generally yeah. speaking, and one of the things that stood out to me the way you said it was design is very much about the we, not mm -hmm. the I, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what was the moment you realized that? Mm -hmm. I think I think design. If we just if we define design as a way, like I don't know, like kung fu is a way, yeah. or um, it certainly doesn't have to be uh, approached via a we. But the when a group of people get together and do it, uh, I think that what is possible is remarkably more impactful and powerful than when an individual does design. 
Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, every one of us has limitations to our brains in terms of how many constraints or uh, conditions we can hold at once. And if if design at some level is about finding the best satisfaction for all of those constraints, it can help to have other uh, heads in the room. Um, relatedly, I think that um, each of us comes and looks at the world through our own lens, through our own perspective, and that gives us one view of that reality we're trying to change. The more diverse a group of people looking at that same reality, presumably the more you're effectively you're going to understand it. Um, I think the most powerful piece of what makes design work in a group setting uh, in a more effective way than as an individual, actually, though, is the conversations that occur. Mm. Um, Einstein used to like to use this term, gerdanken. Gerdanken mm. being a thought experiment, right? It's this idea that you're, you're, you're pulling a concept into a mental model and you're running that concept through your mental model to see where it might fail, where it might work and where it might not. Uh, when you get a, a group of designers who are really seasoned and working together, you, you'll routinely construct and destroy numerous iterations of an idea very quickly because you're being brought into the collective thought experiment, the collective Gerdanken, and uh, examined, broken, mm -hmm. adjusted, reapplied. And it's almost like a first pass or a first system. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a, there's a size to which you can't do that anymore, but in that sort of sweet spot of, of, a, of you know, a big round table, so to speak, you get, you get a group of really intentional minds all pressing on this idea together. It saves you a lot of prototyping. It saves you a lot of uh, um, implementation cycles you might otherwise have to go and do to get to the same level of realization about where the solution was or wasn't working. Mm -hmm. So it's an accelerant. It's like a, the conversation itself is like a rapid iteration uh, design cycle happening just much, much more quickly than anything else. I, I think that's actually where the superpower of it comes from. Mm. So in this uh, we versus I methodology, right? Like what role, if any, positive or negative, does ego play? Mm. Well, ego, I think, is a problem for design, whether it's in a we context or an I context. Uh, if we Again, if we define design as being about figuring out what the constraints are for how you want to change reality, and then figuring out what the interventions or alterations of reality are that are going to achieve those things. Uh, the problem with ego is that it, uh, it just gets in the way. It introduces all these additional constraints. You see them a lot more in a conversational context because it's the expression of the self and the expression of the individuality. But I think we can also see it when we see designers going out into the world and bringing something to the world that expresses how clever they are as designers as opposed to bringing something to the world that just makes the world better. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that in and of itself, from, from my perspective, is just that it, it's serving a different need. It's serving the need of calling attention to a particular approach or a particular school or a particular person, uh, whether it's happening in the context of a group or it's happening as one designer sort of going out into the world and saying, here are the things that I make. Um, the most effective design conversations, which is to say the most effective design that I've ever been a part of, is with people for whom the expression of and defense of the self is, uh, it's just not, it's not central. It's not driving their participation. Uh, and as a consequence, the people in the conversation are free to just focus on what idea, no matter where it came from, no matter who talked about it last, what idea is most likely to get us to the solution we're after. And so it just, it's, like a, it's like a honing mechanism. Mm -hmm. You can think of ego as being like friction. It just drags down your process. Mm -hmm. It just slows you down. So it requires a level of self-awareness to realize whether the artifact that you're bringing into the world is a reflection of like your cleverness yeah. or a solution for a problem, right? Um, but what are some things that designers can do to help check their ego at the door before mm. they actually come into the work environment? Mm. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, it feels like another way of asking your question might be where, what kinds of situations or what kinds of life stages or what kinds of people mm -hmm. tend to exhibit less ego mm -hmm. when, they're, when they're doing design work. Mm -hmm. That might give us a good indication of uh, the sets of situations that lead to less of an ego. Mm -hmm. um, 
I found three so far. One is um, people who have worked enough in their craft that they don't to themselves feel the need to prove anything anymore. They're doing the work for the love of the work. And uh, that in of itself is a kind of a joy and a passion. It's, it's, it's what's driving them. And so uh, this secondary narrative that a lot of us have of if I do this thing, then people will see that I'm great. And then when they see that I'm great, these other things will happen. It's just not there. It probably was there at one point, uh, but through whatever life ex experiences that they've had, they've gotten to a place where it's just not a driving narrative for them anymore. Uh, and it's gone. So that's like a great place to find mm -hmm. people. It's a hard place to find people. It's a very s sort of senior seasoned kind of person. It could be very difficult. Uh, ironically, the person who's just getting into design and starts with that beginner's mind and assumes that they're there to learn uh, can also achieve a very similar kind of place where mm. the, just the process of soaking up the learning and being a part of a design process and seeing in themselves growth is its own kind of, um, is its own kind of feedback system and it's enough. There's no need to establish or push a self. It's, you're just watching this happen and you're beginning, you're entering from this place of feeling like you, you don't really have anything to prove. You don't think of yourself as someone who has anything to prove, and so you're not. And a related one to that is people just don't think of themselves as designers. Sometimes the best design work comes by working with people who really have their ego wrapped up in some other aspect. Maybe they think of themselves as a great engineer, or they think of themselves as, I don't know, take your pick. Uh, but they're, they're really capable at the methodologies of design. They're very capable at working in this collaborative, iterative, I'm sure you guys have looked at this 14 different ways to define it, but um, that's, that can be a really interesting way to, to bring someone around the table because the lack of needing to worry about the moniker actually yeah. takes away the ego's attention. How, how do you feel about, so, I mean, you've obviously worked on enough teams. Like, there's always either one person or like a set of people that tend to play the devil's advocate mm. role, right? Um, I actually heard an interesting, well, interesting story that led to a quote that I, I think is a good question that you ask when you get criticism, which is um, apparently when someone critiques your work, you ask the question, how would you make this better, mm. right? First, I want to make sure that that is actually that your... That sounds right. Did I say okay, that or where did that come great. from? Um, Places. Places. Okay. <laughs> We've been doing our homework. Yeah, great. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> and, and that quote actually made me think about just devil people playing devil's mm. advocate and how unhelpful mm. that tends to be. I actually find people playing the devil's advocate role, people giving themselves permission to criticize without mm. bringing anything new to the table. I mean, I don't, maybe you disagree with that, but I... I well, I think that, uh, you know, in order to... In order to effectively progress down the path of design, yeah. you need a bunch. You need a bunch of stuff, but you you find in that devil's advocate role like half of an equation that's really important. Right. Mm -hmm. Half of it is looking at a situation and asking where does what's current miss what sure. could or should be. And you're identifying uh, the 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 fit miss the misfit right. And that's important. Like good design process begins with that identification of misfit, mm -hmm. and then iterating until fit replaces it. You want that, uh, but you want it paired, or at least in my experience, uh, you want it paired with a kind of optimism that we can get there, a kind of uh, uh, generative or constructive desire to help move the ball forward from whatever is causing the misfit to what might not cause it, and so. When I'm asking people to take criticism and uh, take it one step further to imagine a reality where it wouldn't be a problem, mm. I'm asking them to just pick up the other half as well. It's great to see something that's wrong. Um, it's really easy just to poo-poo an idea then yeah. and not go any further. Exactly. It's kind of a, it can be a kind of a, a lazy stopping place. Right. And in the context of design, it can be a, an energy destroyer. You, you need to to pair that eye of critique with the optimism of someone who's always in a process of, of improvement and, and constructivism. So it's really about just moving the ball through to the other side. Yeah. I remember back at IDEO, uh, this was a, it was so embedded in the culture there. So anyone who was sort of like a wet blanket just uh, would not survive. And I remember speaking 
uh, once with a designer who was really struggling with that. They had come from a culture where critique was praised and they didn't understand why their critique wasn't uh, being seen in a right. positive light. And I, I remember thinking about this metaphor that like every every lump of coal is also a potential diamond. Mm. And do you pre present it as a diamond or you present it as a lump of coal? Right. And that, that's really what it comes down to. In either case, you're, right. you're noticing something that's off. And do you move to optimistically invite people into a process of making the off on? Mm. Or you just point out the off and back away and say it's someone else's problem? Are right. you getting in and engaging? Uh, or are you staying on a kind of safe sideline of critique? Yeah. So it's really about like inviting people into the whole. Yeah. So we've heard a few other mantras uh, from people who work with you. Okay. I like to, <laughs> I'd just like to share some of them and learn what you, you know, what they mean to you and any stories that you can share around them. Sure. So you know, I'm we already very curious myself. <laughs> we already spoke about how would you make it better. Okay. Um, I've heard we just plot on. Oh yeah. Well, that's um, not mine. That's Johnny's. Okay. But yeah, yeah, that's a great one. There's so much to do. Yeah. There is always yeah. so much. <laughs> and, um, and the one I'm actually most interested about, design and engineering have different needs. Design for that. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so let's, let's look at them one at a time. So the, the first one was plot, or was there one before plot? Yeah. So John, Johnny Ive has been a huge influence on me. I, not that we're like close buddies <laughs> or anyway, but uh, I think the processes and the intentionality with which he... And at the time that he and Steve were working together, they um, applied themselves in the context of design. Uh, he, he has more intention with the words and the f phrases that he chooses to talk about how they work than anyone else I've ever come across. So I tend to hang on his every word in a really uh, careful way because they're not, they're very deliberate, those choices. Um, plotting is an interesting and very British thing to say. You know, if you think about what plotting feels like, it's like, being in a muddy, mucky mire somewhere with heavy boots and just kind of trudging from one step to the next. And ironically, the, the way that he describes the process of bringing something like the iPhone to life is using that word. He says, we just plod on. That there's nothing truly magical or fanciful. It doesn't feel like little fairies flying around in the air, breathing right. pixie dust on you all the time. It's, it's a, a bit of a trudge of over and over and over again, finding the places where there's coal and turning them into diamonds. Mm. And that repeated process has a sort of trudgery to it that you have to be willing to engage in mm. as a portion of the craft. It, it is so distinct from the final product, which often feels shiny and beautiful and naively obvious, that I think it's really important to remember that where you're trying to get to and the cleanliness and crispness of that end goal can feel quite different than the process of how you get there, right. which actually can be pretty mundane yeah. and pretty hard. It's a hard, long slog sometimes of just over and over and over and over finding and sanding the edges that are wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and that humility of recognizing in oneself the need to bring that kind of a work ethic, the need to show up in that way and be willing to plod. Yeah. Uh, there's a, actually a sign on my wall here, which is a... A similar uh, sign I made for myself from Henry Miller, the, the playwright, uh, which is this really funny phrase, when you can't create, you can work. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to really get a sense for what he's talking about there. Mm -hmm. This is those moments of inspiration where you feel the spark and you just have the wind behind you, mm -hmm. and it's almost like you've caught a, 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 a disease and you just need to carry it forward. Yeah. But there's a lot of days you just got to show up. And you got to right. fill in the gaps on, on what the, the inspiration that was scaffolded out before you. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that there's actually a back and forth between those two things has also been really helpful. It's a bit of a combination of those two things. So you, there's another ism that we heard about you that you just used without knowing, uh, it, which is uh, uh, naively obvious, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Uh, is that a gentryism? No, well? I think that's probably also Johnny. Is that a Johnnyism? <laughs> I don't know actually where they. It, it, what, what, what does that mean? Naively obvious. Yeah. How do you know? How do you know? when you've designed something that is naively obvious? Um, so I think the larger context in which I think of that phrase is, yeah. is actually in, in Johnny's definition of simplicity. Mm -hmm. So often we think of simplicity as like an imposed aesthetic of minimalism, mm -hmm. a reduction, mm -hmm. a getting things away. And that may or may not be an important goal given the challenge, but that's not, that's not really what you're after in the in the abstract. What you're after is that that place 
Steve Jobs used to talk about like a bell curve where when you get started on a project, you, uh, you're, you have this uninformed optimism that the problem is going to be solvable and you know how to solve it. And so you're going to do it. And that's what le- leaps you in. And then after you're in there for a while, you get to this place where now you understand the complexities that you're actually facing and you have this kind of informed complexity slash maybe pessimism where you you're no longer in that naive place of assuming it's going to be simple. You actually understand the problem is pretty complex. Mm-hmm. He used to argue that if you keep going, you'd co- go, go down the other side of that curve where you'd reach a solution that was as obvious in its expression as your understanding of the problem was obvious when you began, that you would eventually find the complexities collapsing back in on themselves to a place where you would reach on the other side a kind of informed simplicity yeah. where the solution... The best way you can describe your relationship to the solution when you saw it, especially if you had not been in that process yourself, is you would look at the solution and you would simply say, of course. Right. Of course this is the solution. What took so long? <laughs> Why was this so hard? Yeah. And this is like the weird, uh, the weird challenge that we face as designers is if we do our job right, that's what we want to hear out the other side right. is people saying, what the hell took you so long? Yeah. Why was this so difficult? And that, that is the naive, the naive obviousness that... Um, that I think is a is a guiding light for a, a lot a lot of us is how do we can we get our solutions to a place where um, they're real in yeah. a way that our uninformed naivete never was, yeah. but they also hold that of course they also hold that that simplicity of something that just just wants to be just just needs to be just yeah. seems like just seems like the world was always ready for it in that yeah. shape. So you've had the opportunity to work on three productivity tools, at mm. least. Orchestra, Mailbox, and your time at Dropbox, mm-hmm. right? Um, what are some lessons that you learned about the way people work mm. um, and how to maximize your productivity? It's mm. a great question. My, my work in productivity actually began even before Orchestra. I, when I was at IDEO, I got very excited about this idea of joining this collective hive mind of five or 600 designers mm spread out all over the all over the world that collectively had huge depth of experience in almost any imaginable domain and the the seeming promise of that was that in any project you could find expertise to draw from from a huge swath of prior experience um, what i found when i got there was that actually people relied heavily on their existing social networks to to do work and they didn't really know who else in the organization uh had expertise in and what. Uh, and that, that for me was a gateway into seeing the challenges of actually harnessing collective expertise and, and knowledge um, in any organization. Um, and I ended up work, switching away from doing client work to working on developing an internal system for IDEO that facilitated uh, IDEO's own knowledge sharing and collaboration. It was called the Tube, and it became kind of the primary thing that I focused on when I was there. Mm-hmm. For me, that was a, a really wonderful entryway into the both the benefits and the challenges of productivity and collaboration those two words are a little different right uh i think generally people think about productivity as like how do i make myself more efficient Uh, whereas collaboration is a bit more about the we again it's about how do we as a group work together more effectively i find myself more drawn to the latter one the the collaborative problems to me are the really interesting ones uh, because i think there are few things more important to us as a species than getting better at working together. There are so many seriously complicated problems out there that we just don't know how to solve right now as a function of the fact that we're just not very good yet at working together. And mm. so if you think about that as a greenfield for a designer, uh, one of the most important things that we can be working on are tools that transform what it means to operate as a collective, how collective intelligence has surfaced, how we how we organize ourselves, how we apply our creative capacities as a group, how we give every individual in a group a voice, how those voices are aligned with the problems that they're most effectively suited to fit. So at some level, that's the problem space I've been working on from really when I got back into software in the early 2000s. I think it's a, just a really important and rich field of opportunity. It's also really difficult. Uh, it's difficult for a number of reasons. One is anytime you're designing software for groups of people, you have this interesting chicken or egg problem that you don't really know how people are going to work if the tool exists without the tool existing. Mm -hmm. So you have to get into this really iterative cycle with your user base. And that in and of itself is an interesting design problem. 
uh, one that software generally is well suited for, but doing it in a business context can be a, a real challenge. The other one is that people get pretty set in their existing workflows. And so if you really want to encourage new behaviors, you have to find ways to do that that integrates with what people are doing today. You can't just go put a shiny star on a hill and hope that people are going to run to it. You have to find ways to bridge the gap from where they are today to, to where they're going. That was a lot of what we focused on in Mailbox, for example, was finding ways to encourage new behaviors that were just different enough from what people were using today mm -hmm. that you could get their attention, but not so different that they felt like they needed to stop their entire world and go like take a vacation so they could like try on your, your way. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of other stuff too. Like uh, when you're when you're when you're trying to to find ways to to get people to work together, there's there's challenges of of migration that have to do with the group moving versus the individual. There's challenges with motivation. It may be true that the collective benefits when I do a set of things, but if there's not something in it for me as an individual, I might just not. Even though, if in theory, I'm all about us working together more effectively. If the lazy way out for me as an individual is to not comply, well, that's tragedy of the commons. We see that socially all the time. It exists in collaborative systems as well. Um, so it's like these are really complicated systems to design for. There's a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of ways to get squished. It's really hard to make progress in them, and so it can be disheartening. But I think the, the, the upside when you find a way to transform how people work together is so big that it just keeps me really motivated. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old, but today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you and I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. So you founded Mailbox. I co-founded Mailbox. You co-founded Mailbox. Um, and famously, you guys sold the company. You and your founder sold the company within 30 days of it being on the market. Uh, we, yeah, we, we had a deal with Dropbox within, a, I think, a month or two of launching our product. Right. We'd been around for quite some time before right. that. Gotcha. Um, and then just because it sounds nice, yeah. you sold it for $100 million. It sounds, it sounds really nice, right? <laughs> Great. Yeah, and now we're, in your <laughs> now we're in your beautiful home and we got to enjoy the spoils. That's great. Um, okay, so first, what important decisions do designers, really anyone starting a project, what important decisions did you make before, like the moment you decided that you wanted to co-found Mailbox? Mm -hmm. uh, and then just generally, when we start projects, what are some important things that we mm -hmm. need to keep in mind? Mm -hmm. 
One of the things that I've struggled with the most in hearing people talk about agile approaches to startups is this notion that through enough sort of iteration on its own, you'll find uh, a product market fit that you know, carries you through to the promised land of whatever, however, however you define success. Yeah. Um, my background is more in human-centered design. And what's interesting about human-centered design is there is a tremendous amount of iterative exploration happening on the solution space, but little to none happening on the problem space. Uh, you start with a goal about something that you wish to see change in the world. And as your design process evolves, that goal, your understanding of that goal evolves. But you don't shift goals. You will try lots of different solutions, perhaps, mm -hmm. on your way to finding a solution to your problem. You'll try lots of different ideas for you know, what approach you might take. Uh, and the agility there is really important. Each time you try something, you learn something new about your problem, which might dramatically alter the approach you want to take next. And that's important. So that agility on that solution side, it's really valuable. Um, but on the problem side, you're just building a better and better understanding of the problem you're trying to solve. And if you're going to get to the naively obvious place, you, you need depth of understanding of your problem. You've got to go deep in terms of figuring out the piece of the world that you're trying to work with. You also need endurance because it's a painful and long process of plotting. So you need to be deriving a kind of energy from the process of working on this. If you don't feel passion for the problem you're trying to solve at some level, it's going to be really hard to sustain yourself through the entire process of all the failures that are almost inevitable on the mm. way to that success. For us with Mailbox, uh, we, we didn't start as Mailbox, we started as an app called Orchestra. And while on the surface it like Mailbox appeared and then was acquired, uh, what Mailbox really was, was the iterative culmination of several years of product exploration around this idea that people were using email as a terrible to-do list. Our first approach to solving that problem, which we thought was a good mobile phone wedge into this broader collaboration space, was to build a simple to-do list on the phone where it was just as easy for me to put a task on my own list as to put one on yours, and it's just as easy for you to put a task on your own list as to put one on mine. With the premise being that if we did that, uh, we would uh, create a new kind of place, a new home for these tasks, and they wouldn't get lost in email the way that we have all experienced our tasks getting lost in email. Uh, there was a moment where looking at our data and watching how our users were using the system, it became very clear that at best we had created a two-inbox world, and that what we saw was a reality where still people were getting lots and lots of things emailed to them mm -hmm. as tasks. And we couldn't come up with a very good solution for quickly transforming those, getting those out of the inbox and into orchestra. And so we realized that if we really wanted to change this problem of how people used email as a terrible to-do list, we needed to go to where that problem was. To go back to this earlier idea of integrating into existing workflows, we needed to go where the, where the pain already was and where people already were working every day. And so we shifted our strategy with a lot of the same underlying philosophies about how to work into an inbox-based form as opposed to a to-do list-based form. That shift was one of altering our solution approach, but it never really lost uh, the anchor of the problem we were trying to solve. And I think that was very important because what came next as we began to go down that path was a lot of people telling us that, that was a crazy path to go down. Mm. That email was just too hard. Sure. That it was a you know a road paved in blood and bones. corpses and bones. <laughs> yeah. And the conviction that that was the right thing for us to do based on the process that we had built so far and the passion for that problem space was what kept us going. Yeah. Along the way, while we saw that we weren't getting like you know hockey stick growth on our to-do list, sure. we had lots of other ideas for cool things that could happen in startups. Around us, there was an ecosystem of cool mobile things evolving, and we talked about different ideas that might make for good startups. But we never grabbed onto one that didn't that would separate us from that original why, that original pain. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's I think that's really important. I think it's. It's too easy to forget that at the heart of every startup is a group of people, a group of human beings that are being asked to work really, really hard 
to see something into the real. It's a painful, difficult process, yeah. and you need something to keep you going. Uh, and if you don't have if you don't have passion, it just becomes so much more difficult. Yeah, yeah. You guys didn't say that's. It's important to note that you started with a problem. The problem itself evolved, but you didn't start by saying you wanted to disrupt. Email. Fancy, yeah. fancy word, right? Yeah. Like, God, like you didn't start by saying, you know, it'd be really cool if you just made this inbox zero thing work. Yeah. Right? Like no. you arrived there. Yes. You got right. there. That's right. Um, and I think at some point we're probably going to get into the processes you used to get yeah. there. I'm actually really excited yeah. to talk about that. So I actually have a quick question about the marketing of, of yeah. Inbox. So before we go deeper into the product, um, this was four years ago, 2013, mm. right? January 2013. Yep, sounds right. Um, and around this time, people didn't really use videos to mm. market their product. Um, but I remember on launch day, there was a Vimeo video, and our friend El Luna was in there. Yeah. And in 60 seconds, without saying a single word, she kind of captured this emotion of how people felt about yeah. their work and their email. Right? Yeah. Um, and not too many things were shown. There was, mm. you know, she swiped, an email went away, she swiped, she snoozed, and then the cut to black said mailbox, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I want to know, how did you guys arrive at, um, at that form of storytelling? Mm-hmm. Like, why a video? Um, yeah. It's a great really question. The, the, the video concept came from seeing how other startups had... Back then, there was a, a lot of value in, in getting uh, a surge of interest quickly in the app store. Mm-hmm. People were watching the top app store lists. And you could have this compounding effect where if you drew a lot of attention to your app at once... Then it would spike, and then you get a secondary benefit of the fact that it was showing up on this top 25 list, giving you a second bump of attraction. Um, so we'd seen that happening a couple times, and we had noticed that if you launched a video a couple weeks ahead of your product, generally it was two is what we had seen, and if it went viral at some level, if people started passing it around, that you'd be building up all this interest and anticipation in something that wasn't yet available, which had mm-hmm. two, two benefits. One, if you could convert that to some kind of sign-up where you could be notified, you could unleash all that interest at once on the App Store. Two, you have all that a feeling about, about wanting to try the app or see the app or whatever, and you can't download the app, so you send the video instead. So it actually becomes a recipe for the video itself spreading. It seemed like a pretty interesting marketing technique. Uh, we realized we wanted to try it, so we started looking at just the anatomy of videos. What makes a video spread? Turns out it's pretty simple. The more emotion you can evoke in a, uh, with a video, the more likely that the video will be spread. It's a pretty, pretty linear relationship. Turns out it doesn't matter what emotion. If it makes you angry, if it makes you excited, if it makes you long for a better world. In the context of a product, it seemed like the best thing we could do was give people a feeling for how their life might be changed in, a, in, an, in an emotional way. What it would feel like to have a situation that was familiar, like an inbox that was full, and to be able to have an experience of that that was different, that was new, a different kind of uh, liberation over something that maybe felt burdensome. We knew lots of people felt overwhelmed by their email. They felt um, trapped by a bunch of people sending things to them to do. And uh, the idea that that could be turned on its head and that you could give people a new kind of control over that experience felt like it could be very emotional. So that, the first goal for us then became, let's create an aspirational image, uh, an emotional expression of what it might feel like to use this app. And let's do it ahead of the app's arrival so that you know, people could spread it to each other and, um, and then we'll send them all to the app store on the same day, two weeks later, something like that. That was the basic idea. The next thing we had to figure out was how we make an emotionally resonant story that tells you what the app's gonna feel like. And actually, it was looking at Apple and Samsung that uh, helped us think about how we wanted to approach that. We noticed that at the time, the iPhone and whatever it was, the Galaxy something, uh, Galaxy S, they were, in, uh, they were in ads. And the Galaxy S was, I think, the one that was showing at the time was like an Alice in Wonderland kind of theme or something. And this, this Alice-like character carries her Samsung phone into this fanciful world of Mad Hatters and color and and it's clear that there's a fanciful emotional world being created but the device is, is playing a supporting role mm-hmm. and the viewers asked to make a bit of a leap of faith that the experience that's being described in this fanciful way is mirrored in the device and I think it probably works to some extent but Apple because their products were so actually effective at generating emotional responses all they had to do was show you 
And we went back and looked very closely at the original iPhone ads in which they did very little. They just showed you the phone. They showed you how you make a phone call. They showed you how you looked at a map. They showed you how you browse the web. I think there was like a sort of playful voice saying like, this is how you make a call. This is how you look at your music. It was very, um, it was very descriptive. And what you were looking at on the screen, within the screen, was so captivating, so different from how phones were being used at the time, that you didn't need to make a leap of faith. You just wanted what was on the screen. Mm. It felt to us like a much, much more effective delivery mechanism, provided your product was actually that good. We, bo- we felt like the experience we were creating around mail was markedly better than anything around. And so for us, it became a challenge of just simply finding a, a narrative to walk people through what it might feel like to get from a place of being overwhelmed with their mail to being in a place of being all done. And at the end, she swipes away the last of her messages. She gets an inbox zero screen. She puts it in her back pocket and she wanders out about her life and gets back to, to uh, you know, just being outside. Mm-hmm. And that felt like a very effective way to capture the feeling. And you know, we just we just used Apple's playbook in terms of like almost shot per shot. Uh, L was brilliant in in like looking at the anatomy of these shots and literally making uh, mocks that replicated the phone size on an Apple yeah. shot to the phone size. And then we just like storyboarded it out like we were a little Pixar so, so, one. Subconsciously, people thought they were getting an Apple product <laughs> yeah. at the yeah. end of it. That's basically yeah. what we... <laughs> Maybe. Like, yeah. I need an iPhone first. Some dark pattern marketing. <laughs> so um, I, I want to walk into a room with you guys the moment you started prototyping mm-hmm. Mailbox, right? Mm-hmm. So you said it used to be a second inbox that looked like a like a to-do list. Eventually, you guys ended up with this yeah. beautiful email app yeah. um, that was done better than most others, right? Um, any others? So I'll give you I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there, Art. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, earlier, you used the the word Godunkin. Godunkin, yeah. Godunkin, right? Yeah. So while you guys were in your Godunkin, your yeah. thought exercises, um, what? Um, at what was the moment where you realized that the idea for Mailbox as it launched was the one that you guys wanted to run? Well, it, like anything else, it happens in lots and lots and lots of little sure, ideas sure, yeah. that evolve over time. I think the first one was recognizing that we we needed to go to where the messages were. Mm-hmm. And so at, at a minimum, we were going to need something email client-like. We talked about automatically slurping in all of your emails and then trying to figure out which ones were tasks or creating like a side-by-side world of tasks and emails. And over time, as the idea evolved, it became more and more email-centric with a bit of a task-focused workflow. Um, I remember, though, as we were beginning to explore mobile gestures that felt fluid and light and powerful uh, and really locked onto this idea of swipes, which we also didn't invent. I think mm. it was the the to do list. Clear had really done this really well, and in, in uh, with with uh, tasks, the impending guys just like hit it out of the water and just felt great. Um, we realized we we were sending those messages places. That was the metaphor that made the most sense. Is that I was pushing the message somewhere, and so we had this series of physical prototypes of all different kinds, like paper based realities that your screen was moving through, and we had all these cutouts and we'd hold like a cutout over of a stencil of an open phone window over these pieces of paper and you'd imagine okay now I'm moving this message and like move the screens around and we actually played with several different physical realities to find one that started to make sense it was very important to us that there be a spatial metaphor that you could connect with so you could get your head around what you were doing one of the things we realized is that this inbox is just piled on forever and if you sent something to archive you didn't know where that was and so that was scary but if you left it there, then your inbox was scary and people, they didn't have the equivalent of a desk where they could even arrange their content. And so we wanted to give people a surface. But the nature of that surface went through some bizarre explorations on the way. And really physical prototyping and that kind of uh, problems turned out to be very helpful because we could take any conceptual model we had for where the messages were going and actually do it and see how it felt. And tried a lot of like sticky and prototype-based ones until we landed on this concept of three zones: mm-hmm. your snooze things, your archive, and your inbox down the middle. And you were just simply pushing the messages between them, which mm-hmm. people picked up on quickly, and it, it just made for a pretty, pretty uh, intuitive, of course, naively obvious kind of model. Gotcha. 
So when people finally tried Mailbox, there was still a little bit of behavioral change going on. There right? was, yeah. Um, and you said that, there, there's this quote I have for you. Um, At first, it's simple because you don't understand. Then it's complex because you do understand. And finally, it's simple because you understand. Um, can you tell us more about the iterative process of understanding and complexity within that design mm-hmm. journey? Um, I think I think a good metaphor of the getting simple is actually that's that spatial one of thinking through how how you conceive of an archive and an inbox and a snoozed yeah. area and landing on a physical metaphor as a way yeah. to do it. Uh, there's a corollary piece of that, which was this point of view that we had that. Uh, actually came from David Allen and GTD. There's no reason to have an inbox of things that you weren't dealing with staring back at you all the time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, either you needed to do an opt-in world where you're looking at each thing and, and pulling it into a second inbox yeah. that you paid attention to, which is kind of how GTD works, or the loan we landed on is you just push the things out of the way you don't care about anymore. But they were... They were there were two approaches of trying to get down, whittle your inbox down to the things that actually mattered. Mm. And the premise of that was what, you would, what would remain for you was a list of important things, a list of things that actually needed your attention as opposed to things that needed your attention spread out among a zillion other things that don't need your attention. Uh, and, and that was definitely a new way of working for a lot of people. Most people that we interacted with had very deep inboxes, and getting to the inbox zero was like an impossibly crazy idea. Um, we added a button at the bottom that said, help me get to zero, <laughs> that people really liked. And we found an incredibly high correlation with trying that button and sticking with the product. Because if you felt for once, just once, what it felt like to not have anything else to do in your inbox, it was like a little bit of a drug. It like really got you in a way that then you had... You had an invitation to continue the process. Yeah. And we certainly hear most today, now that Mailbox is no longer around, yeah. from the people who used some version of that Inbox Zero. And the people who used it as just a regular email client too. But the ones who really loved it were the ones who made that leap to adopting their process and to getting for the first time to that feeling of, ah, everything's in its place. Turns out there's a psychological principle for this called the Zagarnik effect. Our minds in the background, in our unconscious process, will hold six to eight open loops of things that we're telling ourselves that we need to remember. If we can close those loops, either by doing it or even just by putting it somewhere, knowing that we'll get back to it, knowing where it is, then our mind will relax and we have more attention and more capacity to focus on the things that are in front of us. So it actually brings us a kind of peace. It brings us a kind of ease. That feeling that you see when L walks down the hill is actually what you get psychologically when you close all the loops. That is the Zagarnik effect. So we wanted to give people a taste of that. And so the question really was one of how do you bring someone from a messy inbox today to a place where they can try that for the first time and make that process as unscary as possible, Mm -hmm. which I think we did an okay job of, but probably there's a lot of room for making that better. And you guys ended up creating a paradigm that's pretty much common in just about any mail app today now. Um, I actually wanted to ask about the first mile of the product. I actually think that you guys had a non-traditional first mile in that you actually innovated on a wait list as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because most most products have the first mile as the onboarding. Right. Your onboarding was now you got to wait. <laughs> yeah. So walk us yeah. through how you okay. guys landed yeah. on that because that was yeah. pretty cool. We get asked all the time, like, "How'd you invent the wait list?" That was <laughs> such clever marketing, and it it was not clever marketing. It was survival. Uh, sure. So we we. Uh, we set for ourselves a goal of 100,000 views of this video. We thought if we can get 100,000 views yeah. and we'll gather some percentage of those of phone numbers and email addresses, we'll send it to the App Store all at once. We might get a little bump. That'll get us off to the races and we can start to evolve from there. Yeah. Um, the video was so successful at generating that viral loop that, I don't know, we had a couple million views in the first like 24 hours. It, it was a little out of hand. Jeez. And there was this really interesting moment yeah. where... The folks on the side of the startup who had been working on, let's say, the marketing and storytelling, we were so proud of ourselves <laughs> for this effective like okay. vehicle we'd created. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people whose job it was to make sure that your first yeah. experience of Mailbox was one where the system didn't fall over were becoming more and more white. Yeah. Like just, just sheets of like, oh, this is bad. I mean, one of the premises with our system is we would go out ahead and we'd pull in all your mail, we'd clean it up, we make it very compact and ready for mobile. But that's a pretty heavy endeavor. So a new user was very expensive from a server perspective. Once we had you and it was a new, new messages here and there, not so bad. But it was like 
you know, a hundred to a thousand times more complicated to get you first set up yeah. than to keep you on any given moment. Okay, so imagine unleashing, you know, several million people at once <laughs> yeah. onto the system. There's no way it's going to work. And this is a system we've never used before. Like, yeah. We ended up going, I don't remember the exact statistics, but the number of messages we were processing within a couple of weeks was up, was equivalent to like the number of tweets that Twitter had to handle after like five years. Wow. And it's just the scale because how much stuff is already happening in people's inboxes is so high. Yeah. The bar was incredibly high if we were going to set for ourselves a goal of that experience being great and not being down all the time. Uh, we had some friends over at Flipboard. We learned from them the hard way that it's much more important to guard entry to your nightclub, so mm -hmm. to speak. If you're creating an experience and you want people to try it, it's much more important to make sure the folks inside have a great time mm -hmm. than it is to let everybody in at once. Because if everyone's out, outside waiting outside the club and the people coming back out are saying, man, that was amazing, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. No one really likes to wait in line, but you're okay. Yep. If you let everybody in, or even a subset in, and they go in, they're like, I don't know what that was for. That was a waste of time. Everything is over. And so we, we decided it was more important for us to make sure that the people that, that could use the system could reliably use it than for us to meet the demand all at once. Yeah. So then we had this problem, which was the App Store, it's an all or nothing thing. Our, our, app, our, our product was an app, which means we need to put it in the store, which means there really wasn't going to be a way to prevent all these people from downloading the app at once. And so we thought a lot about what to do about that. Um, there was a moment where we realized, well, we could give people a place in line and try and kind of like vaguely tell them how long we need, they would need to wait. But the reality was the only piece of information we knew is what order we were going to sure. let them in. But we didn't know at what rate because that was a function of how well our system was working. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't give them a reliable prediction. We thought of abstracting that into some way. People said, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to show how many people you have because what if it's small? But it felt like however it came to it, it was going to be a dishonest experience for people who, whom we were asking to trust us with their email. So we've got this w world where by the values of our product, we needed to be honest with people, which meant we might as well tell them where they were in line. Yeah. We didn't know what that number was going to be. Um, and then uh, a, a VC friend of mine suggested, well, if I'm in line and there's a lot of people in front of me, I at least like to look behind me and see oh, how many sure, people are behind yeah. me. So you might as well put that number in too, which I think was a brilliant little moment yeah, of yeah. like, whatever they call schadenfreude, the like German word for slightly enjoying the suffering of someone else. <laughs> of course, it's, German. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, so um, those pieces together, I think turned out in, in, in hindsight to be a, you know, a really clever way of handling the situation, but it, it wasn't born out of trying to be clever. Yeah. It was just born out of trying to, to satisfy the design constraints in the best way possible, given where we were in the system. And so I think that's actually, for, for me, a good reminder at the power of design itself. It takes you to places where people go, wow, that's so smart, but it really isn't about that. It's just about plotting through the steps. If we can't let everybody on at once, then we need some sort of wait list. If we're asking them to trust us with their mail, then we need to be honest with them about what that means to be in a wait list. Yeah. If we need to be honest, and the only piece of information we have is how many people, then we're gonna to have to show it to them, and that's all there is to it. And so, it, yeah, it, it took us to a place that didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't born out of any kind of boldness or cleverness, it was just born out of this process. And mm. I think it's a testament to the process in that yeah. way. So the mailbox execution was a strong collaborative effort between you and the team. Right? Absolutely. Um, earlier we spoke about the we versus I methodology. I'm curious what things you did in your process that embodied that. Mm. Like what did, how, when people showed up to Mailbox day in and day out, like what were you guys You're doing? You're talking about the company, now, yes, not the product. to drive that innovation. Well, I, you know, a, a startup in that stage of going from zero to one is this temporary entity. Mm -hmm. Once you get to scale, you're still a company, but it, everything kind of changes, right? When you're when you're going from one to a hundred or a thousand or whatever that number might be, uh, the processes are quite different. When you're in the place of going from nothing to trying to establish something, it's like, the best metaphor is like a, a, is a quest. Mm. You're a group of people on a quest together. You're on a, on a hero's journey. You're on a kind of adventure. And uh, you cannot afford not to be a team. You can't mm. afford anyone kind of around the table, so to speak, that's not deeply involved in that quest because it is a harrowing, emotional roller coaster of a journey where everyone's probably gonna work a lot more than they wanted to. 
And there are days that you're pretty sure you're not going to get there. And if you don't really love the people you're working with, and if you don't enjoy working with them, uh, you're just not going to make it. So I, I don't know of any way to think about the process of early stage startups except as a we. It's um, this is another another one from Johnny, but he 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 imparts this idea that the only reason to go through all the frustrations and complexities of working together as a group is because the group is capable of things that no individual is capable of on their own. And that's certainly true in the context of a startup. If you think about all the pieces that you need to put in place and how quickly you need to do them in order to get that thing off the ground before you run out of runway, it's a complicated, scary, difficult endeavor. And you need a well-oiled group of people working together as a unit, as a kind of platoon. Yeah. In the same way that a platoon, if they're agile in the ways that they move, can fight a much larger battalion, you're this small group of people looking for disruptive opportunities, windows of opportunity where your innovation trumps what, what <laughs> it's really hard to use that word now. <laughs> your innovation like uh, it exploits yeah. uh, things that aren't working well in much larger systems. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's, absolutely essential that that you operate as a collective unit so I, mm. I, don't, I actually don't know any other way to do it mm. uh, and I think the failure mode is actually opposite that teams that don't build strong collaborative capabilities that aren't really teams in that truest sense mm-hmm. I, it maybe there are edge cases but for the most part I think the probability of success is pretty low mm-hmm. uh, we need to go to community questions next, okay? So here's what okay. we did. We reached out to the community and we asked them to tell us what's burning up inside of their minds and they gave us five questions that we want to ask you. Cool, so, all right? That's great. Okay, so every guest is going to answer these. So you're, yeah. You're, all you're, the you're, same five questions? Same five questions. Oh, cool. the same great. five questions. Yeah. So um, the first question for you is, how should designers explain the role of design to people inside of their businesses? Mm. Well, if you think of design as a methodology, as a way of something like, Kung Fu, then I think it's really about, the question is really about finding the places where that methodology is best suited to be useful. So what are the sets of problems where the solution is really not known? Mm. And uh, the opportunity for a designer, whether or not they call themselves that, the opportunity for someone who applies the methodology of design is to use this iterative uh, process of trying to find this solution to a problem that heretofore didn't exist and uh, bring it to life. So I, th- I think that, um, I think the most important piece of talking about design in, in a larger context, among people for whom that might feel more like a word in the set of things like art and fashion, right. and beauty, simplicity, uh, is to really reframe what design is, reframe design as a way, as a methodology. The second question is, have you noticed any patterns in how the design teams at successful companies are organized? Hmm. Oh, wow, it's a great question. Uh, I've certainly seen the risks. When you get big, it, there's a, a challenge of getting too disconnected from the work. I mean, design is a hands-on methodology. It, it's more effective the closer you are to the problem you're trying to solve and the more you're like in the mud and the dirt of it. And in large organizations, the bureaucratic structures and the division of labor can create a distance from the problem that's being solved. It can create a kind of uh, dismantling where you're dealing with a piece of anatomy instead of a problem. You're dealing with a siloed issue instead of something that you can sink your teeth into. And as long as the designer is... uh, being asked to work that way, they can't employ their intuition. They can't actually leverage that human part of us that's wired to spot the problems and fix them. Uh, And so as a consequence, the magic just runs out. Uh, You also get the secondary consequences of too many meetings and too much structure and all this kind of stuff. Um, So I, as a rule for myself, I'm trying to stay in places where I can get deep into the problem. As soon as I separate from it, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, my ability to have impact is gone, yeah. uh, no matter how prestigious the role or how theoretically impactful it is. Mm. Uh, I, I can't apply the parts that guide me because I can't truly see or feel my way around. Okay. Um, so finding ways to get, get into, the, into the mud and stay there is, uh, I think, the most important. Gotcha. 
The next question is, when you're the only designer in a business, how do you convince the leadership of the value of design? Mm. <laughs> Everyone chuckles at that, by the way. I that's, love the reaction. Yeah, like, it's I love the best. The reaction, yeah. <laughs> it always gets a chuckle. <laughs> as a as a rule, I'm not sure how much value there is in trying to convince anyone of anything. Uh, there, as a designer, in the course of just moving through life, whether in the context of your business or elsewhere, there will arise moments for which design is well suited. If you can step into those moments and demonstrate the capacity, I think you might alter people's perspectives about what's possible, and that's great. Um, but if if you're in a place where you're having to make arguments to justify the importance or validity of design, it's almost I, I don't know. I think you, you might want to back up and and take a different path. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tough road. That's a tough road to get into a philosophical argument about whether or not this is useful. There's yeah. probably, particularly as a designer, I would think there's probably better things that one could do with one's time. Fair enough. Yeah. Next question is, how should designers measure and present the results of their work at their business? How should you measure and present results of your work? Well, design is about satisfying the constraints of the problem you're trying to solve. Great design should satisfy them. I think the very often it's easy for us to get lost, particularly in the context of like design and tech and whether or not the work that you do makes something look nice or makes it simpler or you know, fits it into a class of products that someone had in their head before the project began. Um, a great piece of design solves a problem in a naively obvious way. So when it works, it should be pretty self-evident. And when it doesn't, it's it's... The job is to keep going. Keep plotting. Keep plotting, yeah. Right. yeah. The final question. Feeling good? Yeah, sure. Okay, good. The final question is, as the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles and methodologies that you think will emerge over the next five years? Mm. This might be another place where my view in the world is kind of skewed and compared to others maybe That's that you've okay. talked to. Um, I think we're in a really interesting time. We're in a time where people are waking up to the realities of the mismatch between Western culture and what's happening to our world. Um, it's, it's manifesting itself in a lot of ways from the fact that the temperatures around the planet are rising to the nationalistic responses we're seeing in, in the West uh, to the disparities of wealth and power that are beginning to emerge. I think it's safe at this point to say that Western culture as it is currently defined is not sustainable and will not last. So that's interesting. And as designers, that's particularly interesting. Here we are representatives and embodiments of a culture that has swept throughout the entire world, has taken over, subsumed, and in many cases destroyed much more sustainable and much more effective cultures that were here before us. And we're destroying our planet along the way. And we're getting to a place where that's unavoidably obvious. Uh, so now the question becomes, what do we do about it? There are, there are people who, in, the, in a way that's not dissimilar from that critic who can't be constructive, just look at the world and say, we're fucked. Mm. And uh, while I think that's a valid perspective, it's not really one that you can do much with. Yeah. Um, there's also the opportunity to look out at where we are and ask, how can we make it better? Yeah. How can we actually fix the situation that we're in? Yeah. And I don't have any answers for that. Sure. I, don't, I don't know that anyone does, but I do know that there's a really good process for going about solving problems you don't have answers for, and that's what design is. Mm. I think at the highest level, we're in a uniquely important time for people to ask as designers, where can I apply my creative energies as a human being towards altering the course of humanity and altering the course of Western culture towards a place that's more sustainable, towards a place that's more viable, towards a place that's more harmonious mm -hmm. in general and in particular with the natural world that we we still seem to kind of like treat as a resource for us to mine and rape. Yeah. Um, I think that is the great challenge of our time. We are still like blind men wandering in the dark trying to feel our way around in a world that is teetering on the edge of disaster. And it's 
incredibly important that we do something about that. Uh, and I think more and more of us are becoming aware of that. And if there's a shiny silver lining to that, it's that that reality was true whether or not we were aware of it. But from a position of awareness, we can now treat it as a design problem. We can now step into that and begin to work with it. What that looks like, I don't know. I'm really attracted to the idea of collective intelligence as a mechanism for beginning to allow us to take on levels of complexity that as individuals or dumb organizations, those are really our two options today, we're not equipped to handle. Mm -hmm. There is so much broken with the world, we just don't know how to fix right now. And we need different ways of working together if we're going to solve it. There are other approaches. Some people think like, uh, you know, an AI may come in and, and solve things for us. Uh, Maybe, but even since the 60s, we've, we've, we get ahead of ourselves mm -hmm. in terms of the intelligence of our tools. We have a lot of intelligence among ourselves. We just don't know how to use it. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to put it together. And in some ways, that's a much easier problem than creating a computer that's sentient. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that in the, the decade to come, we begin to get much, much better at working together to solve the things that matter most. And that what we see next is a pivot in, in terms of our own definitions of what good looks like, in terms of our own focus mm. as designers and as humans, and that we start taking on the big problems that are facing us. Well, that's an amazing yes. place to <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank, Thank you, Angie. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, we're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's SearleVideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, Video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.